Well, would you stand with me and let's read our scripture this morning. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is God's word. You may be seated. Title this morning is Silenced by Grace. And uh, if what you just read seemed familiar to you, it's because Scott Fiskness last week opened God's word to us from chapter 10, which is the same story. But that story is narrated by the narrator of this gospel, or, or of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke. And chapter 11 is the same story from Peter's own perspective of what had happened in chapter 10 to a group of Jewish believers in Jesus at Jerusalem. A central issue that the events of chapter 10 and the first part of chapter 11 points us to is what I'm just going to call the reality of religious racism. The reality of religious racism. How many of us this morning know that religious racism has been a reality in the past and remains a reality at present in the world? How many of us are, are conscious of that? In all three of the major religions of the world, Christianity and Islam and Judaism, and in virtually every other religion of the world, uh, we find some expressions of this brand of racism and of discrimination. Religious racism rears its head whenever and wherever we take our own deeply felt prejudices who are toward people who are not like us, and then baptism, baptize them, allowing ourselves to believe that God himself 
joins us in that, endorses, affirms, shares our own prejudice. But it's especially egregious, isn't it, when Christians, we who claim to follow Jesus Christ, who came to seek and to save the lost, who gave his life to redeem men and women, boys and girls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, are found guilty of religious racism. It was when I was just a kid in 1963, nearly 60 years ago, that that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. uttered these famous words, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. See, I believe that, that in our broken world, God intends that that the church serve as a bridge of racial healing and reconciliation. And to the degree that, that we fail to be that bridge, we fail to be the church of Jesus Christ. The, the Spirit of God wanted us to read and reflect on, on this pivotal moment in the, in the history of the growth of the church, spread of Christianity, just a little bit longer. He gave us two chapters on the same story so so that we wouldn't just skim the surface, but rather we would dive into its depths and we might mine its meanings for us as, as Christ followers in the 21st century. So I hope that you'll join me as we spend some time this morning in verses 1 to 18 of Acts chapter 11, the passage that we just read together. In verses 1 to 3, then we're reminded that the apostle Peter was jeered at Jerusalem. He was jeered at Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 3, now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter So Peter goes up to Jerusalem. While he's there, he's criticized by these Jewish believers for his conduct in Caesarea. Caesarea is north of Tel Aviv by about a half an hour. And there are at least three observations necessary to to understanding what's happening in these first three verses. First, it's important to note that that Peter's trip to Jerusalem was not in response to some kind of ecclesiastical summons. Um, he wasn't called back to Jerusalem to answer for himself, as it were. He's he's not on trial. He he went up to Jerusalem of his own accord on his own schedule, and and it was while he was there that that these criticisms were leveled against him. Secondly, the, the English Standard Version, which is the translation that we use here at LifePoint, says that, that those doing the criticizing were the circumcision party. Uh, who were the circumcision party? I want you, to, first of all, to know that that's not an event, but a group. Um, later on, especially beginning in Acts 15, it, it becomes apparent that, that among the Jewish believers in Jesus, there arose a, a movement around the idea that in order to become a Christian, truly uh, in the truest sense, that a Gentile would first need to become a Jew. That is, that they would need to submit to circumcision, they would need to adhere to the law of Moses. 
And some of the central tenets of this movement are expressed there in, in Acts chapter 15, 1 and 5. For example, Acts 15, 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So notice that circumcision becomes a prerequisite in that way of thinking to salvation. Verse 5 of chapter 15, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And this movement's often referred to as the Judaizers. Paul later had some choice words for them. We'll, we'll leave that uh, for several weeks from now when we actually arrive at chapter 15. But interestingly, the, the actual Greek text here in Acts 11.2 doesn't identify a party of the circumcision, but instead it just says the circumcision, uh, which could just as well be interpreted as a simple reference to everyday Jews or Jewish believers in Jesus. So in other words, um, this movement hasn't quite uh, coagulated yet. It hasn't come together into a, a significant movement just yet. Third, and, and this is perhaps the most important ob- observation, it's the, the crux of the criticism, which wasn't that Peter had merely been in the presence of circumc- uncircumcised Gentiles. In this case, Cornelius and company, Roman centurion, but instead that he had actually eaten with them. That he'd eaten with them. See, to the Jews, as as among many Middle Eastern peoples still today, to eat together is is to enter into a deeper intimacy. Uh, to dine together is not merely to show hospitality, but but to express inclusion and acceptance and friendship and fellowship. And we've lost we've lost a bit of that, haven't we? Uh, in America, that that value of simply dining together, lingering together at a table. Um, McDonald's and Wendy's and Burger King have all kind of wiped that away because we we want fast food, not friendly, not friendly food. We want it fast because we want to shove it in our face and swallow it and leave. I think we should eat together, don't you? I think we ought to linger at table together. I think we ought to do that a lot. And to these believing Jews, for, for Peter to have gone into the house of a Gentile and sat down at table with him was like lighting a match in a room full of natural gas. It was an explosion. To them it was as if Peter had, had just carelessly set aside all of the Jewish features of the Christian faith. And for some of them, it had been a bitter pill to swallow to acknowledge in the first place that God would include Samaritans in his kingdom, and yet Samaritans were not even considered Gentiles. They, they were thought of as half-breeds, half-Jew, half-Gentile. But, but for full-on Gentiles to be fully included and fully embraced and fully accepted was just too much for them. 
but we'd be getting ahead of ourselves if we were to suggest or even to imply that 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 Peter himself had nothing to con- to uh, to consider or to learn about racial or religious prejudice. In fact, in Galatians two, Paul cites two examples that demonstrate that Peter continued in his own life to to struggle with bringing his lifestyle into conformity with the truth that God indeed had included the Gentiles in Christ, and that so then must he. Peter and most every other Jewish boy or girl had grown up with a a deep-seated prejudice toward Gentiles, even bordering on hatred. And it would take him a good long time in his life to break free from its grip. If you were raised in a particularly uh, racially prejudiced home, you you would have the same struggle. You would empathize with, with where Peter was. So, but here in chapter eleven, we can see God beginning work on that very project. In verses four to sixteen, we can observe that God intended to eradicate that that religious racism from His theology, that is, from His mind and and from His affections, that is, His heart. And so, in the remainder of this passage. We hear Peter himself describing four impacts that God used to just pound Peter's prejudice right out of him. And the first is what we'll just call the divine vision in verses 4 to 10. But Peter began and explained to it to them, that is, the Jews in Jerusalem, in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying. And in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. I notice that Peter in this vision looked closely. He looked intently. At, he took a good look. He, he got right down in there and, and gazed at what was going on in the great sheet. He found that it was full of every kind of critter that had never, ever, ever, ever found its way into Peter's mama's kitchen would never be found on the menu of any kosher restaurant would would never have crossed Peter's lips the vision was followed by by the voice that gave Peter a startling order rise Peter kill and eat and Peter protested by no means lord for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth And after Peter's protest, the voice rebuked him, telling them that he was not to call common, that is defiled or unclean, that is impure, anything that God has made clean, anything that God has made clean. Then notice with me that Peter said this cycle of command, this uh, of of command and protest and rebuke was, was repeated three times, which means that On six occasions, Peter heard a voice from heaven. Each time expressing the same direct command, the same direct 
rebuke. And in Mark 7, 19, Jesus had already declared that there should be no distinction between clean and unclean food. What began to dawn on Peter was that these clean and unclean animals and birds were actually symbolic of clean and unclean circumcised and uncircumcised people. Second divine impact came in the form of the divine command in verses 11 and 12. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Now check this out, because I think that the arrival of these three men is is really pretty interesting. In chapter 10, it says that now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So so before this divine commandment was given that he should go to Caesarea, the divine doorbell rang. Three guys are at the gate. They're they're yelling, Hey, is Simon Peter in there? Does, is this the house where Simon Peter's staying? And God was so committed to getting Peter to Caesarea and into the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion, that he stepped in to serve as the divine doorbell to tell Peter that they were there, that he should go with them. And then God added the command, whether it was audibly or inaudibly, we're not told, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I, for I have sent them. So three men arrive. Spirit again speaks to Peter, whether it's audibly or inaudibly, we don't know, but but the Holy Spirit's direct command to Peter was to accompany those men to Caesarea without hesitation, with no doubts, without discrimination, drawing no distinctions between them and himself. So if you do the math, you learn that there were ten men that left the house of Simon the Tanner in Joppa to travel north to Caesarea. There were the three representatives of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. There was Peter himself and, and then the six believing Jews from Joppa. And the late Scottish theologian William Barclay saw, saw significance to the fact that Peter's entourage, excluding the three representatives from Cornelius, numbered seven men. And, and Barclay wrote that in Egyptian law, with which the Jews would have been acquainted, seven witnesses were necessary to prove a case in court. And in Roman law, seven seals were required to authenticate an important legal document. So these seven men, Peter and the other six, would, would together witness the amazing and, and, and important thing that God was about to do in Caesarea and be able to testify to it afterward. The third impact hammering away at Peter's prejudice was what we'll call the divine preparation. The Divine Preparation, verses 13 to 14. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house, he meaning Cornelius, 
Cornelius told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So arriving in Caesarea, Cornelius told Peter and company how God had prepared him, prepared him for their visit. Notice that the angel said that Peter would bring him a message by which he and his entire household would be saved. The Cornelius was was a lot of things. Scott pointed out many of them last week. He Cornelius was a leader. He was a devout religious man. He was a good family man, generously engaged in meeting the needs in his community. He was successful in his career. He He had a lot of good things going for him. Cornelius was a good guy. But please don't miss this, that until Cornelius heard the message of the gospel from the mouth of Peter, believed it and received it, he wasn't saved. He wasn't reconciled with God. His sins were not forgiven him. Notice with me what the angel had previously said to Cornelius, that Peter would declare to him a message by which, by which he and his entire household would be saved. And I want to just remind us this morning that, that that you can be a respected man or woman in your career and in your community. You can have all kinds of kudos on your religious resume, but your resume does not matter to God. It's only when you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you repent of your religiosity, you transfer your trust to Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on your behalf on the cross, that your sins are forgiven, you're reconciled to God, you become a citizen of his kingdom and a member of his family. What an amazing story, isn't it? Two very different men, two divine visions, Peter the Jew, Cornelius the Gentile, Peter the Galilean, Cornelius the Roman, Peter the fisherman, Cornelius the soldier, Peter the politically and militarily oppressed by virtue of his Jewishness, that he was an Israelite, Cornelius the oppressor. See, God was at work at both ends, in Cornelius and in Peter, sovereignly preparing each of them by granting to each of them a unique, personal, and appropriate vision on successive days and sovereignly orchestrating their meeting. He told Cornelius in Caesarea to send for Peter in Joppa. He told Peter in Joppa to go to Cornelius in Caesarea, and he brought them together, both of them, in the right way at the right time. Both had to cooperate with the promptings of God, of course. And that's exactly what each of them did. Now notice, fourth, the divine action, verses 15 to 16. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I I love this moment. Cornelius and his family, 
were so prepared by the Spirit to receive the message of the gospel that they believed immediately. Before finish, before Peter could finish his, his sermon, his evangelistic invitation, whatever it was, the Spirit fell on them. So cool. And notice that last phrase in verse 15, just as on us at the beginning. So, so Peter's first recollection in this moment, as he's, as he's watching the Spirit fall on them and whatever was going on there, was the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit had fallen on the church in Jerusalem. Remember that? Clear back in Acts chapter 2. Seems like a long time ago now, doesn't it? Acts chapter 2. When they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Because there in Cornelius' house, Luke tells us in Acts 10, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Peter's second recollection was of an occasion Long prior to Pentecost, when the Lord Jesus said to the apostles, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And these two recollections, these two powerful memories combined in Peter's mind, and, and he realized that the experience of these brand new Gentile believers there in Cornelius' living room, as the Spirit of God was poured out on them that day, was identical to his own experience and to the experience of all the other disciples on the day of Pentecost, and that the promise of Jesus regarding the baptism of the Spirit included not just the apostles or Jewish believers in general, but Gentiles too. So don't miss the power and the significance of this moment. We're moving through the book of the Acts of the Apostles together, and we're, and we're doing that systematically and sequentially so that, so that you would come to understand what the Holy Spirit was doing as He gave birth to the church and as He, as He guided and directed the expansion of its mission. I want to draw your attention to two rhetorical questions that then came from the mouth of Peter. One is included in chapter 10 and the other here in chapter 11. In chapter 10, as Peter was hearing the Gentiles speaking in tongues and praising God, he, he declared, can anyone, can anyone, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In chapter 11, in explaining his reasoning in the matter to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem who were hot under the collar at him for cozying up to Gentiles, Peter again declared, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? As the late John Stott put it, water baptism could not be forbidden to these Gentile converts because God could not be forbidden to do what he had done, namely give them the spirit baptism. 
The argument was overwhelming. To have withheld baptism in water would have been to try to stand in the way, not of what God wanted to do, but of what he had already done. In granting them salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and in welcoming them into the family of God on equal terms with believing Jews. Something Peter must have come to understand about the vision God gave him is that the sheet is the church. The sheet is the church. See, I used to really wonder when I was young about the significance of Peter's vision of that, that weird sheet. I mean, it's a weird vision, right? This, this sheet that's being lowered down just for Peter to see. And it, and it's full of critters. Four-footed animals and beasts of prey and birds. God was preparing Peter not only to eat with Gentiles, but also to embrace them as fellow citizens the kingdom of God as brothers and sisters in Christ. The sheet is the church. Paul wrote to the believers in Rome that the gospel is for everyone, whether Jew or Gentile, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, he said, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote that the baptism of the Spirit is for everyone who believes, regardless of whether they are Jew or Gentile. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all, all were made to drink of one Spirit. And to the disciples in Colossae, he wrote that here in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, Free, and I think he would have added all kinds of other groupings of people if he'd had the time, but Christ is all and in all. And one, when one day we, we all stand before the throne of grace, John tells us that we'll be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And why will that be so? Why will that be so? It will be so because the sovereign God wills that it be so. This is my Father's world. He he reigns with sovereign authority over everything and everyone, and he is working out his agenda, which is to bring everything in heaven and earth, everything and everyone in heaven and earth, together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So consider and take to heart this morning that that God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is for the nations. One of of the often ignored and overlooked themes of the Old Testament is that God had actually called Israel to be a missionary people. One of the expressions of that is in Psalm 96, So sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. All the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. 
The Apostle Peter in his first letter spoke to Christian disciples with words spoken first by Moses in Exodus 19 and addressed to the nation of Israel, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Proclaim the excellencies of God to whom? To the nations to everyone who will listen. And, and when Jesus gave the great commission to his disciples, he commanded them to make disciples of all what? All the nations. And literally all ethnicities, every people group on the face of the earth. And remember that Jesus prayed that we would all, all who believed in him, be one. In what's been called his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed, I do not ask for these only, that is, I, I don't ask just for, for my apostles and, and the disciples that surround them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who, who are they? They're you and me. They're you and me. Jesus was praying there for you and me. And what did he pray? That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Just think about, just think about the power and the, and the intimacy and the mystery of that. That, that the unity of the Father and the Son, that we would enter into that same kind of intimacy, that kind of unity with them. And that God would do that. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. So the glory of Christ in the church is our oneness. The glory of Christ in the church is that we are one people, one people of God. And the witness that flows out of that is that our oneness is the thing that gives credibility to our claim that Jesus is the Son of God and that God the Father sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. Was he praying only for a mono-ethnic church? No, he was praying not only for those first Jewish disciples, but for you and me and everyone who would believe in Jesus through the word of the apostles, everyone, anywhere and everywhere of every tribe, every nation, every language, every color of skin, every shape of the eye, every shape of the nose, male or female, Jew or Gentile, high or low. And since God makes no distinctions in his new community, neither must we. And yet it seems that, that the church in every age has struggled, hasn't it? To accept the reality of its own unity. Or the authentic equality in Christ of every member. And again, pay attention to these words from the late John Stott. The same ugly sin of discrimination has kept reappearing in the church in the form of racism, nationalism, my country, right or wrong, tribalism, social and cultural snobbery, or sexism, discriminating against people on the grounds of gender, all such discrimination is inexcusable in the Christian community as both an obscenity because offensive to human dignity and blasphemy because ex- 
because offensive to God who accepts without discrimination all who repent and believe. Like Peter, we have to learn that God does not show favoritism. God does not show favoritism. And what happened there in Jerusalem is that the Jews in Jerusalem were silenced by grace. They were silenced by grace. When they heard these things, verse 18, they fell silent. They were persuaded by the evidence. They were silenced by the awe-inspiring glimpse of the greatness of the grace of the sovereign God, of his plan for the nations to extend that amazing grace to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ. And notice in the latter part of verse 18 that that their realization of God's grace moved them to worship. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, their criticism ceased and their worship began. And they had good reason to worship, and we have good reason to worship with them because they concluded that to the Gentiles, goyim, Gentiles like you and me, God has opened the door to his kingdom and to eternal life that's received by faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, see, this is the beginning of your story. This is the beginning of you being allowed into the kingdom of God. Had this moment not occurred, we might not be sitting here today. See, the kind of Christianity that Jesus had in mind builds bridges of reconciliation. This past week I heard a a brother named Ephraim Smith say this, that, that Christianity is not Christianity. It's not Christianity if it can be contained by any given culture or any particular expression of that culture. See, God God helped Peter, and through Peter, he helped the church and us today to know and to take to heart that Gentiles, people like you and I, are acceptable and accepted in Jesus Christ. See, God was about pounding the prejudice out of Peter. God required more of Peter. God requires more from us today. He has called you and me to be agents of acceptance, inclusion, friendship, fellowship, of reconciliation and healing to everyone, especially to those whom he is calling to himself. So let me ask you this morning, is your heart aligned with the heart of God for the nations? Is your heart aligned with the heart of God for people in your own neighborhood, your own community, that are not like you? What prejudices might the Holy Spirit want to pound out of you so that you can be useful for His kingdom? Do you really believe that Jesus has made us and is making us one? 
Paul later wrote that God was in Christ reconciling the world, the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And listen to this. And he gave us, he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. I'd like to suggest that that you reach out to someone this week, just purposefully reach out to someone this week in your world, someone of another race, someone or, or someone who's just different from you, and begin a friendship. He gave us the wonderful message of reconciliation. God is calling us. LifePoint Church, he's calling you and me to elevate the name and the gospel of Jesus Christ, whether here or near or far. So let's repent, shall we, of our old tired prejudices, allow Jesus to radically save us from them. And then reach across the street and around the corner and around the world with the message of reconciliation. When you came in, you received one of these wonderful little puzzles. What I want to say to you this morning about this is that the communion, the bread and the cup, is the ritual of reconciliation. How is that so? Because it reminds us over and over and over again that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Ground is level at the foot of the cross, and and whosoever will may come. When I was a, a child, we sang this song in Sunday school. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. See, and and since they are precious, since they are accepted, since they are loved by our Heavenly Father, then they must be precious and accepted and loved by us, by you and me. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 to 17, Paul said the the loaf from which we eat, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And, And the cup that we drink, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And since we drink from one loaf, or we eat from one loaf, or we drink from one cup, we are one family. So, Whoever you are this morning, whether whatever ethnic background is yours, Christ is making us one and transcending our cultures and transcending our languages, transcending our ethnicities. So the ritual of reconciliation, the, the body of Christ, the loaf which we eat, take it and eat it together. The blood that, or the cup that we drink, is it not a participation in the blood of Jesus Christ? 
Because we drink one cup, we are one family. Let's drink it together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you included the likes of us, that you opened the doors of the kingdom to Gentiles. And that you said that we are acceptable, that you said that we are accepted through Christ, through the cross. Lord, make us more deeply one and allow us individually and as a church to be about the work of building bridges of reconciliation in our communities and in our world. May that be so, not because we are able, but because by your Spirit, you are able. We pray in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen.